Is there any truth at all to the idea that you could write a script and then just mail it to yourself and that would somehow no. give you more protection? No, 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 <laughs> I'm, I'm interrupting you on that one. Today, I talked to Professor Jackie Borok, an entertainment lawyer and professor at Drexel University. She is the only person I know that can actually make copyrights fun to talk about. If you're thinking about making a movie or any other creative project, especially one based on a real person or public domain work, you definitely want to hear this. And if that doesn't hook you, stick around for our conversation about celebrity boxing. So I guess first thing is that I perceive you as someone who wears many hats. You are a professor, an entertainment lawyer, a producer, and the mother of a TikTok star. But if you had to pick one of those titles, what do you consider yourself first and foremost? That's a great question. Um, because, well, the mother of the TikTok star would probably be the mother part is is would be my first priority, but the TikTok part is not is definitely the last <laughs> on the list, I would say. You know, my practice now, I mean, for many, many years, my primary practice was as an entertainment lawyer, and you know that's what I did full time. But these days, I actually work for the court system as my day oh. job. yeah, I, I work for the I, I went to law school many eons ago because I wanted to do criminal law. You know, I guess criminal law, I was probably drawn to that because of the drama, which is how I ended up in entertainment. I have one main client now uh, where I'm producing, but that's more of a developing area, so I couldn't it's it's probably my favorite professional. But also, I love teaching. Right. And I know that because I've had many classes with you. <laughs> I know. I'm aware of that. I never thought that uh, copyrights and trademarks could be interesting. But somehow, uh, having more than one class on that, uh, it never got boring. So well, thank you for saying that. That means a lot to me because I think if I, I mean, I don't teach full time because I like having I like my day job and I like having flexibility of doing other things and other projects. Um, and I think sometimes when you do something, even if you love it full time, you start to get dragged down with the administrative stuff and all that. So I would say at this point in my life, professionally, I, I think I'm looking forward the most to producing. And we will definitely get to that. I'm very, very interested in talking to you about that. You said you currently work in the court system. What exactly would you say is your position there? You said you have a client. I'm actually an employee of the court system. So we work for the judges. And what I do specifically is what are called post-conviction petitions. If people who have been wrongly convicted, um, when somebody is convicted of a crime for them to appeal, they have 30 days to appeal. And if they lose their appeal for whatever reason, that's it. They're out of court. And so the post-conviction process was designed to, if witnesses recant or, or DNA evidence is discovered or something like that, it's a way to get around those strict time periods. Um, so it's a really good thing. But the problem is that a lot of these guys are sitting, you know, with life in prison, they have nothing to do. So they just file these petitions that don't have any merit. What else are they going to do? Right, exactly. So my job is to go through all of those petitions respond to them and make sure that there's nobody else, um, you know, that's if there if there's somebody who really raises a real genuine issue of innocence or potential, um, you know, merit that, that it gets addressed by a judge. That That's what our department does. You said that you started your career wanting to go into criminal justice, right? So how right. did you then end up in entertainment law? <laughs> well, I needed a job. <laughs> 
um, well, I got out of law school and I went to work for a judge, for a appellate court judge. And usually you only do that for a year or two, and then you have to start looking for um, another position. And so I was applying at the time, it was very competitive at the DA's office, the public defender's office. But in the meantime, I got a job offer to do environmental work. And um, that was about as exciting as watching paint dry. But it was, you know, it was it was nice and clean, so to speak. Um, it was just we were just dealing with large corporations. And um, it was, was in the late 80s when the Superfund laws were were really new and being tested. And so I guess, you know, it was a great job for a young lawyer to, to, to learn litigation. But the work itself was extremely unsatisfying. But I was young. I was single. I lived in the city. I had a lot of friends who were writers and artists and, and things like that. And they started asking me for help. So I kind of started doing it on the side. And then um, I got really interested in it. And the firm that I worked for was very generous in allowing me to, um, you know, pursue uh, clients in that area. And I did. So that's sort of how I, I just taught myself. It's entertainment law compared to other areas of law. is not once you know the certain basic things like copyrights, you can kind of and contracts. So in the area of entertainment law, what exactly would it be that you would do for your clients? It wouldn't be criminal cases, right? It would be more. There's, there's different types of entertainment lawyers. So you have people who are litigators. So they have people, um, clients who want to sue people for infringement or or, or are being sued for that. Um, so those are litigators. Those are the people that go to court. And um, even though they specialize in entertainment, they're primarily their litigators, which is a very different skill set than what are called transactional lawyers, who are, which is what I did. Um, transactional lawyers are people who do contracts and, and advice and, um, right, you know, deal making more. We never go to court. In fact, if we do that, if our client sues or wants to sue, um, we would end up, you know, referring them out to a lawyer who specializes in, in court cases and litigation. So mine was much more hands-on, sort of like a, a a more specialized agent or okay. manager. What would you say was the most like common crop of clients you would have? Would it be musical artists, writers, actors? In, you know, in Philadelphia, there's only a handful of people that do entertainment law. So the people who do it are do a little bit of everything because they're the right. two people. But the lawyer that I work for, um, his name is Lloyd Ramick. He's still around. He's in his probably in his 80s, although he admit that but he was primarily a music lawyer he got very big in the 1960s he represented gamble and huff and um you know the philadelphia sounds all that the, those uh musicians and producers he was um primarily music law although he did a little bit of everything including sports i sort of developed a specialty because of the timing like in the mid early to mid 90s to represent independent filmmakers because that was an area that was really starting to grow. I sort of developed an, an area of expertise with that and helping people who were um, doing films, like doing all the, helping them with the financing and doing all the contracts and things that helping, you know, producers acquire scripts from writers. So I was sort of back of all trades, but under the umbrella of filmmaking. Real quick, could we go over exactly what the difference is between a copyright and a trademark? <laughs> um, well, copyright, definitely. Trademark, less so. So they both fall under the umbrella of intellectual property. The third uh, area is patents, but we don't really get involved with that because patents are for inventions. 
otherwise trademarks and copyrights, uh, they are protections for intellectual property. The main difference between a copyright and a trademark is what they protect. So a trademark protects almost exclusively business names and business logos. So if you have the name of your business, so copyright protects uh, creative works, trademark protects business names and logos. That is the primary difference between the two. So do trademarks have no place in kind of the entertainment conversation? They can, because if, if you're filming something and you're showing a product, you're not allowed to do that. Nobody can reproduce and distribute the work without the permission of the owner. If you remember the early episodes of Seinfeld, I don't know if you watch Seinfeld, but if you see in the earlier seasons, you know, before the show was really popular, he had cereal boxes on display in his apartment, but the boxes were turned into the backside so that you couldn't see the names of the cereals. And then as the show got more popular, all of a sudden you saw, you know, Fruit Loops and, and Cheerios and whatever were plainly visible because they got permission to show those trademark names. So that is where trademark can come up in the conversation for visual creations, because if you show any kind of Coca-Cola or any type of product name and or logo, if you don't have permission to do that, that's trademark infringement. I'd like to uh, circle back to the uh, independent filmmakers that you would you represented. What would some of the most like common issues, grievances, I guess, you would see pop up for independent filmmakers that you would have to deal with? The first step for, if I was representing an independent filmmaker, I would hopefully represent them, so to speak, from script to screen. So it would start with the script, whether it would depend on whether or not the, the filmmaker was also the screenwriter, um, because if they weren't, then we would have to acquire the rights to the screenplay. So that would be the first thing. There's an, and Obviously, at each stage, there's negotiations involved. Right. So if the, if the writer collaborated with somebody else on the script, that would have to be the subject of a contract. And then if they got far enough in production and all the production contracts, the, you know, all the people that you hire, the, the actors, the creative people, everybody, uh, the, the investors, you know, that was a big, that I used to refer out because that's a whole other area and it's complicated. So it's, it's a lot. I mean, there's a lot to, to handle from the beginning on. And then once the production's underway, then that's pretty much they or they can fly on their own. And then um, if they get distribution, then I would handle um, any distribution negotiations with distributors to get the film out. That's sort of the, the soup to nuts of it. Would you find that most of the uh, independent filmmakers that you would represent, would they have any general idea about all of this uh, legal rigmarole that would be going on in the background or that they would need to take these steps to make sure that they did everything correctly? Or would most of them just kind of assume, oh, I'm a creative person. I write this script. I can just like make a movie. <laughs> um, definitely the latter. Most creative people don't want to deal with the business side of things. And what I can tell you is, and you've probably heard me say this in class, it's not show art, it's show business. And in my experience, yes, most people rely on the lawyers. They don't take the well, first of all, they don't have the background in it, which is why I applaud Drexel for 
forcing you guys to take classes like mine because just in general, it makes my life easier to have a client who's educated and who understands their issues. But you're in this not for fun, you're in this to make a living. And it's like any other business, you should know the business end of things. It's like somebody who wants to open a store and they, they want to, you know, decorate the store and buy the merchandise and deal with the customers. And that's all the fun, sexy part. But if you don't have your lease signed and your licenses done and your taxes and all those things and your inventory and all that kind of stuff in place, you're not going to have a business. So this is the same thing. And the legal issues are implicated from the minute somebody creates something because that's when copyright protection attaches. And so to the extent that people don't know that they can get into trouble down the line, you know, against their own self-interest because they don't realize how copyright works and they can either get into trouble by using somebody else's inadvertently or they don't know enough to protect their own work. And so it's critically important that people that go into this industry understand that. And I think that's, I hope that's starting to change a little bit, but I found that my more successful clients were the ones who took an interest or at least were aware I, I mean, I don't expect people to know the intricacies of the legal aspects the way a lawyer does. Of course not. You hire a lawyer, but you want to be able to work with them and protect your own interests as much as possible so that, you know, in the end, it's it's your business. You know, it's the client's business. It's not mine. I can only tell them what to do with it. But in the end, the end result is going to live and die with them. So um, while most people don't want to deal with it or they don't want to take an interest in it, um, it's not a good thing that that's the case. How important is it actually for a writer to copyright their script, like going through the actual copyright office? You mean to register it? So it's yeah. copyrighted. Remember my class, it was copyright, copyright protection and patches upon. Right. That was even my follow up is if the creation of it would serve as enough of a copyright to protect you versus um, actually right. registering it. Right. So technically, the answer is Yes. I mean, you, you should register it, even though you don't have to. Um, and what I can tell you from a from a professional standpoint is that if you're dealing with a professional company, they're going to require you to provide them with a registration. So you should always register it, even if you even if you don't think it's going to go anywhere. It's just it's just your own protection. You know, it's just it's for your own benefit. And even though the law doesn't require you to do that, you still should do it anyway. It also shows a certain level of professionalism that you're doing that. So people will will register with the writer's guild because it's got, you know, cachet, but they don't they don't want to spend the thirty five dollars to register with the copyright office. when that's really where the protection lies. But, yeah, no, I, I think I tell everybody to register. Is there any truth at all to the idea that you could write a script and then just mail it to yourself and that would somehow no. give you more protection? No, 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 <laughs> I'm, I'm interrupting you on that one. I already knew I the answer never... to that, but I just wanted to hear it from uh, someone who gets paid to deal with this. <laughs> it, that was, I don't know where that came from, except that I think people somehow morph the idea that because it's going through the U.S. Post Office, that it, which is a federal agency, that somehow that was independent proof, but it never was. It's not like it was like that at one time and then it changed. That was never the case. And in fact, if you go on copyright.gov, they, they dispel that right up front as well. They call it a poor man's copyright, but it's not a sub. It doesn't mean anything to mail a copy of it to yourself. It's not, it has absolutely no legal or practical um, impact at all. So um, I would like to now talk a little bit about this uh, 
newer producing side of yourself if you wanted to maybe talk about that a little bit okay well um i've always i think i've always wanted to be a producer so i just didn't know it and um i went to law school instead so um but like i said i that was i was i had this other part of me that wanted to work in the criminal justice system on the on the justice side i would would have hoped so you know over the years i've had a couple of projects cross my path, I actually did produce in 1999, I produced a documentary with my dad, who has since passed away, but he was a, a musician, and we decided to do this film, and it was a wonderful experience. I absolutely loved it, um, and because I was partnered with a nonprofit, I didn't have to worry about raising money, because they raised all the money, which was great, so I had sort of carte blanche to do the film, and I, I did take it from conception to we actually did get a, a distribution deal and it got into a couple festivals and stuff so it was a great experience and so ever since then I've kind of wanted to do that and I've I've made a few stabs at it but you know it was hard I mean I had a full-time job and then I had kids and it's you know if you want to produce you really have to be immersed in it but um, I had a friend who I met through this entertainment lawyer that I worked with many years ago who who did sports law and this guy was uh, he had at one time been a professional boxer his father was a, a boxing trainer had trained several world champions and he had this very interesting life and I said to him you know I would love to do a documentary on your life story and he agreed, and and um, he had started something about 20 years ago called Celebrity Boxing, where he got these um, celebrities, like D-list celebrities, who were they had fallen into you know obscurity or whatever, and he sort of brought them back. And he did these crazy celebrity boxing matches. He had Tanya Harding, he had Octomom, he had uh, Rodney King fight a cop. He did a guy named Jose Canseco, who was a, a baseball player who was mired in controversy with steroids. And he got all these crazy, crazy people, and he put them in the ring together. So he had he, his boxing career had been derailed because he got injured. So he he went into celebrity boxing. And uh, my cousin, who is a photographer, also knew knew this guy. And so I went to him and, and he'd been doing his his events for years. And I said, why don't we just, you know, sort of guerrilla style do a document, you know, no budget. Let's just take a camera and see what we can do. And so we started doing that. And in the middle of it, the subject, whose name is Damon Feldman, went to jail. So we sort of were on hold for a while. Well, while he was in jail, he wrote a book. And he came out of jail. He went to jail because he was he got drunk and he hit his girlfriend. So, um, you know, it was it was bad. I mean, it was not a good thing. But anyway, he sort of had this epiphany while he was in jail. And he said, you know, I want to I, I I love the idea. Are you still with me? You know, everybody kind of abandoned him, but we didn't because um, he's really a good guy underneath it all. And, um, you know, he made a terrible mistake, but he he really redeemed himself. And he said, you know, I would really like to do this as an autobiographical. It's biopic, a biographical picture, biopic. So um, anyway, he so I said, great, like, let's do it. I'll produce it. And um, we got somebody. Actually, he found him. It happened to be a friend of mine who teaches at Drexel, a wonderful um, screenwriter named David Greenberg. And David wrote the script. And that's where we're at with it now. But in the meantime, Damon is like on fire and he started building up his celebrity boxing again. And I started working as his attorney and then as his partner. And we're still, we're, he's, he just, he got out of jail like three years ago and he hasn't stopped and he's getting bigger and bigger. And so our plan now, right, right now is to um, just kind of focus on the celebrity boxing um, and build that up and build up interest in it so that we can hopefully 
eventually get you know a lot more interest and a lot more opportunity to produce the film. So that's so I'm learning you know with him not just about producing a, a feature film but also uh, doing these live events and coordinating them and deal. I do all the contracts for him and it's like a constant thing and dealing with investors and you know there's a lot of a lot of stuff that you have to wade through to get to what we hope is. is thing and I said to my husband like even if you know nothing happens with it it's it's a fun ride you know we don't we don't know where it's going to end up but the other thing I tell my students is in this business you prepare for failure because that's generally what happens but you also plan for success because you never know I was looking forward to getting this part I have a note on my phone that just says Damon Feldman oh he came to your clip right now if somebody else just wanted to come along, saw Damon's story and thought, oh, that would make it for a good movie. And they wanted to just take his story and make a film out of it. Would they be able to? Um, it depends, right? The typical lawyer answer. So when you are um, the re- so we have the exclusive rights to his life story. In other words, he can't he can't go to anybody else. Nobody else can come to him. And that is life story rights. Now he is a producer on the film as well. And I intentionally did it that way, which by the way, is never ever done. But I just felt since this was sort of a personal thing that was, you know, that came out of a friendship and evolved into something bigger and bigger. Um, you know, it's his life. And, and I just wanted him to feel like he had control over. Usually what happens is. I think you're cutting out. Sorry. Are you still there? Our call dropped. Don't worry, it'll be right back, but I thought now would be a good time to mention something. Pretty soon we're going to start talking about my script, the one I first mentioned in our episode with David Lawson, but I realized you listening have no idea what it is. So for context, the script is called Shakespeare and the King in Yellow. It's a historical fiction horror set in 1607 England about a rival of William Shakespeare who, while trying to write a new play to outdo the bard, unknowingly unleashes evils of Lovecraftian proportions when the ideas for this play start coming to him in strange dreams. It's based off of Shakespeare's real life and takes elements from a public domain book, and we're about to get into all the legalities that come with that. Okay, so where were we? We're talking about um, uh, life rights. Right. Uh, uh, Oh, um, if somebody came along and wanted to uh, make Dan's story. So, um, you know, there's a difference between like authorized biographies and unauthorized biographies. But if the person is alive um, and somebody makes a story about them, they can there's potential that they can sue for, among other things, defamation or something that's called a false light portrayal, which is um, sort of like defamation, but it's it's not quite the same. Um, they're difficult cases to bring and they're difficult cases to prove, but it doesn't mean that somebody can't sue. For it. So um, even if ultimately the producer is successful in fending off the claim, they've done so after having to go through litigation, which nobody wants to do. So um, the short answer is yes, somebody can do it, but they, they, they would do it at their risk um, of not having permission and running the risk of, of getting sued for certain types of claims, which if you have permission means that when you sign you sign an agreement with somebody, you get permission not only to tell their story, but to tell it um, in a way that you want to tell it without, and they have to sort of waive their rights, waive W-A-I-V, uh, waive their rights to 
bring a lawsuit against you for telling the story and taking perhaps taking creative license with it. So if you don't have permission, if you if you haven't signed an agreement with them or you haven't signed a deal with them, that's the risk that you run. And it is risky because, um, you know, it's it's uh, distributors, you know, insurance, like the, the business people that you deal with, investors, um, people on that side of the fence don't like dealing with risk. So it is a risk. But the short answer is, yes, somebody could do it, but they could also get sued for doing it. So what exactly are life rights and how do those work in conjunction or versus getting the rights to a book that someone might have written about their life? Or is there a difference? Because Damon, um, the movie is based on his life, but it's also based off of the book that he wrote, right? There's a couple of things. I mean, we could use him as an example. Um, So let me just say up front, you can't copyright facts. So if if somebody wants to do research on Damon, never met him, um, never, you know, interviewed him or got his perspective on things, and they just went by information that they got, factual information that they got about him in public, that's fine because there's no there's no if it's if it's factual, then there's no there's no copyright issue and there's no um disparagement issue. You're not you're not if you're not but if you take those facts and you draw certain conclusions from it that are negative, that's where you can get into a problem. I mean, nobody does a movie, even a documentary, that's just strictly factual. I mean, there always has to be sort of a a storyline and a point of view. So um, depending on what your interpretation of those facts are, that's where you can get into trouble. Now, if it's somebody who has passed away, um, all bets are kind of off. So because remember, I don't know if you remember this from class, but you can't defame a dead person. So you don't have to get life story rights if if you're doing a fictionalized account of somebody who's passed away. That's why you have things like Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter or whatever it is that, the, you know, the crazy line of films that came out. So if it's somebody who's passed away, you pretty much have carte blanche to to do what you, to fictionalize or create whatever you want. But if it's a, a person who's still alive, there are some issues that can come up, defamation and and things of that nature, um, telling a false story about somebody are, you know, now, again, like I said, it's it's sort of, it's not, those aren't slam dunk cases because on the other side, you, you're protected under the first amendment and 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 so on. So it's, it's a, they are difficult cases to prove, but they're not difficult cases to sue for. And that's that's a major distinction. Now, if something's based on a book, again, it depends on, what it's, you know, the only thing that you're changing there is the medium. In other words, a book versus a film. So the question still remains whether it's if it's an autobiography or just a biography that they didn't get the rights to, you're going to run into the same issues. And then adapting that book into a film is just you'd have to know what the underlying arrangement was, whether it was something that the subject participated in with the author or not, because if they participated in it and you get the rights to that book, you're probably going to be okay. Those rights, for the most part, transfer, hopefully, if the contract's written properly for the book. But if if it's an unauthorized biography of somebody and you base the film, you can get the rights to the book, because remember, the book is subject to copyright protection. So to base it on that book, you would have to get permission from that author or the publisher to base a film on that particular book. But if it's an unauthorized biography, you're going to run into the same issues that the author could have run into of the book, which is 
potentially defamatory type of claims. So it, 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 when you're so when you're transfer when you're talking about creating something, whether it's a book or a film or a play, the original source material will determine what the rights would be going forward. In other words, if you make a play or a book or a, or if using Damon as an example, if you use his life as a as the basis as the source material for a play or a film or a book, the rights that you need to get are still are the same regardless of the medium. So it's it's I I feel like I'm making it more complicated, but that's it's sort of it's sort of a layered um, issue. So did I explain it right? No, yeah, I think that is a that is a great and thorough explanation of all of this. And I was actually going to use this to kind of um, segue into some questions that I had about my own script that I wrote. I don't know if you ever got a chance to read it. I or did. The... I thought it was great, Ryan. I think you did a great job. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. I just I read it. I read it when you first sent it to me, and I just read the synopsis again because I forget easily. But that's fine. Most of what I want to discuss falls around the um, the questions about um, using a historical figure and basing something off of a public domain book. Well, hold on. What do you mean a public domain book? Is this an original script, or did you base it on a book? Well, it's a combination of both. There is a. Uh, a book written by Robert Chambers called The King in Yellow from uh, 1895. Okay. That is a bunch of short stories that are very loosely based around this um, play that when somebody reads it, they go mad. So I just took that element and then just set it in 1600s England and made Shakespeare a primary character. Okay, okay that's fine then. Yeah, the book would be public domain. And of course, Shakespeare has been dead for almost 600 years so i think you're okay there but when you base something off of a uh, public domain work is there still any sort of concern that you should have or is it once it's in the public domain well first of all you okay so you just took elements of the book and the color yellow it sounds like or the you know yellow i mean you used yellow ribbon yellow sign things like that that's too common if it was in a book that was still subject to copyright protection okay that's that's arguably a problem but you took an element of the book and combined it with something completely new and fictional so i don't see any problem there and even if there was the book is public domain anyway but this is where people get confused and i did too believe me for years it took me years to understand this so copyright protection only extends to the actual creation of something. It doesn't extend to facts. It doesn't extend to ideas. And it doesn't extend to what I'm going to call differentiated from ideas, meaning verbal ideas. It doesn't extend to concepts. And what do I mean by that? Well, let's take the, the lowest hanging fruit these example in my scope of reference is TV court shows. So we have Judge Judy and we have the hot bench and we have uh, uh, Judge Joe Brown and all these different court shows, which are all produced by different producers, different networks, different companies. Why are they not infringements? Because the concept of a court show is not protectable. The only thing that's protectable is the actual episodes. That's what copyright law protects. So, if, and by the way, they they really protect them because Damon has been on um, three of those shows with different people that didn't show up for his fight. <laughs> and I tried to get copies of them, like even on YouTube and stuff of those episodes, and you can't get them. 
because they're protecting their copyrighted material, that's fine. I mean, it's not a problem that they're doing that. It's just usually a lot of TV shows, even though they're protected under copyright law, you see them on YouTube, people get them and, you know, but this, these companies obviously go to great lengths to protect their copyrighted material so that nobody duplicates it without permission. So, but that is the only thing that they can protect is the actual episodes because that was, these were their ideas that were fixed with copyright language fixed in the tangible medium of expression. They're fixed. But the concept of a, of a court show is not protected. And so anybody can do that. Similar uh, argument, uh, similar uh, concept is, is fairy tales. So everybody, anybody can do a Sleeping Beauty or, or Cinderella. Disney happens to do it the best. And Disney's version of Cinderella or whatever I they they're all under still under copyright protection but Disney's versions of those fairy tales are protected but anybody else can do their own version of Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty or whatever because the source material is public domain so the concept of doing a movie based on the fairy tale Cinderella cannot be protected because the source material is public domain but your own creation of it disney's version of it is is protected under copyright which just means that you can't use any literally any footage from disney's or if disney added elements i you know i don't know the original fairy tales like if disney added elements about the, the mice i think it's I think it actually does, but the fairy godmother and the mice turning pumpkins turning into coaches and all that kind of stuff. And those may be unique to Disney's, and there that could be a problem if somebody took it. But as long as it's in the original source material, it is not a problem. Somebody else could do a, a, a script that's similar to yours, using the same concepts of this sort of haunting uh, curse and and you know being involved with Shakespeare. But as long as they don't lift anything specifically from your script. Um, it's not a, it's not an infringement. Right. And online, I feel like I, I, I see a lot of other um, screenwriters being like scared to share their work. It's like, oh, I don't want like somebody else to steal my work. But someone else could just take the same concept. And also nobody wants to just take your right. entire work. So the only thing that um, that they have is the right. script that they wrote. Right. Which could could inspire other people's ideas. I mean, there, you know, there's a famous case, I usually try to share it in class, but um, there's a very famous case involving uh, a movie called Amistad. And Amistad was a historical event. It was the name of a ship, it was a slave ship that was headed for the Caribbean and it went off course and ended up in Massachusetts. And so the inhabitants of the ship, because they landed in Massachusetts, even though the intent was to put them into slavery in the, the islands or wherever it was in the South, they sued for, successfully sued for their freedom. So it was a very big thing at the time. They, they went to court and they, I think John Adams was a lawyer or something. Anyway, it's a historical very unknown incident, but it's a historical incident. So this woman wrote a book about it called Amstead. This is a perfect example of what your question that you're asking. He wrote a historical novel, like a fictionalized account of the incident, because obviously it was 100 years ago and nobody was there to tell it. So mm -hmm. um, she wrote the book and the, the galleys of the book, the, the pre-publication version of the book was actually sent to a company called Amblin Entertainment, which was Steven Spielberg's pre-DreamWorks company and they rejected it and so that was that no big deal and then a couple of years later 
DreamWorks, which was the new incarnation of Steven Spielberg's company, came out with a movie called Amistad. And of course, the author sued him, but she was with a big publisher. I mean, in fact, her uh, editor was Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. Yeah, so she sued and she lost the case. They ended up settling. But the court said that these were historical facts and you cannot own the copyright to a historical incident. Now, the problem with it was, of course, that she had, you know, her the other side had more money and better lawyers, but she she had people in the book that she created, fictional characters that she created that turned up in the movie. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And by the way, the reason that the court did that was because they're leaning more on the side of First Amendment protection. So the infringement part is you know, they're, they're, these cases are very hard to prove. And most people, the, the screenwriters that you see that are scared to do that, they're not wrong. Because when you put the idea out there, particularly if it's a good idea and it's unique and original, um, all somebody has to do to create their own version of it is change change things enough to, you know, make it a little bit unique. And then they're out of the danger of copyright infringement. So it's because it's the concept and and the courts want to be as broad as possible in terms of um, providing creative freedom for people. So it's so, you know, and it's it's tough because writers, they, they it, it's it's a balance. You know, you want your work to get out there, but you do run the risk of somebody taking your ideas and that it is perfectly legal to take an idea. It's not legal to take a, to duplicate a copyrighted work. And that's the main difference. Well, thank you so much for, for talking with me. I'm sorry for keeping you much longer than I said I would. Not at all, Ryan. It's my pleasure. And that's my fault because I talk a lot. So <laughs> I hope you guys. No, not at all. It's been a fantastic conversation. Um, thank you so much. Good. My pleasure. Is there anything, anything that you want to plug or shout out? Maybe the 16, what is it called? 16 minutes? No. Six to the sixteen minute man. No, I don't. He he does that plenty. It's my old. He takes on my whole Facebook page, but I don't even post anything anymore because he tags me on everything, and that's all you see on my Facebook page is Damon's life and what he's doing. <laughs> I don't care, but you know, um, no, I actually was going to ask you what you're going to do with your script. Uh, well, right now this is this is what I'm doing with the script because, um, you know, I have uh. I've been told that it's 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 an all right script, um, but something like this, it would be near impossible to get made. So I figured instead of um, letting it just sit in a in a drawer, I might as well force some people to read it and then talk about it. So right now, this is the plan for the script. <laughs> well, I think you did a great job on it. I don't know why they would say it was impossible to get made, but I, mean, I guess I guess. A yeah, period pieces. But I mean, that's not that's just a costume thing. It's not like, you know, a lot of times people don't like to do historic pieces because, you know, every little thing in the film has to be historic. But that's like usually cars and stuff like that. That can be expensive. But um, yours takes place mainly in, in indoors. So I don't know why that would would be an issue. And then at a lake, I mean, I, you know, I don't see that being as a huge financial piece. But I thought, it, you know, you had it described as a horror um, film and it, 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 I don't, I guess that's the correct genre, but it wasn't horror in the sense it was a, it was a thriller. I thought more, I mean, I guess that's more like, I don't know the, you know, correct 
I mean, I guess thrillers are more like espionage and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I had a, I had a but hard it time hard kind of a picking what to what to label it. I almost call it like a like a like a fantasy, but it seemed a little too dark. Yeah. No, I I I, I agree. I mean, I thought it was I thought it was really um, sophisticated. Well, thank you so much. Very. Yeah. I really, really enjoyed it. And I'm not, that's not my genre. I like, you know, rom-coms. And <laughs> um, I don't, I wouldn't usually watch, you know, a horror film or even a fantasy film, but I thought this was, it was very well done. It was very, it was, it felt together very nicely. The only thing that I do want to say to you. And yes, please. This could, and I, 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 I hesitate to say it because I, it, it's such a big premise in the film, but I'm not sure if women, uh, were allowed to play roles in Shakespeare's time. I think the the female roles, and you did allude to that at the beginning, but I'm not sure that plot point. You, and and it's not a big deal. I mean, it's a fantasy um, script. You know, it's fictionalized, so you can do whatever you want with it. But you know, if it does, you know, if it is put out there, you don't want. I just wanted to put that in front of you because I'm not sure that you know somebody else might bring it up to you, and then you didn't. You know, if that's the case. Mm -hmm. um, I think only men were allowed to appear on stage. Well, that was definitely a little bit of um, liberty that I took just in that Shakespeare would be willing to do that. I, I mean, I did research into it. I don't remember what or if there even was any like account of what Shakespeare's actual like um, thoughts on it were. But um, at the time in England, it definitely wasn't the case that women would play men's parts. I think in like Spain and Italy, you could see that, which is why they kind of talk about like, oh, let's just like leave and go to Spain or whatever. Right, right. There's a little right, bit of liberty. On right. Part. Okay. Okay. Well, anytime you're dealing with, you know, historical, there's always somebody that's a critic and it's going to point something out, you know, that's not historically accurate or whatever. And so I, it, it didn't matter because I think it worked, you know, it was a small point, but I just wanted to, to raise that with you because, you just don't want somebody coming to you and, and saying something about it in you know in any kind of negative way because it is it is it first of all works for the story obviously but it it was just very um, it's very nuanced and it just was very well done and it it really you know I was like excited I mean it, it kept I definitely was engrossed in it so, wow, well, um, so I did want to yeah I did want to say congratulations to you because um, <laughs> I thought you did a great job. So, and I, I hope that you do do something with it at some point. Um, Hopefully one you know, day, that'd it, be cool. Yeah, yeah. So um, good luck with it. But I think you show real promise as a writer. And I think that's that's a great thing. I think you're off to a great start. Well, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that uh, overabundance of um, kind words. And um, I appreciate you sitting down and uh, taking all the time to uh, talk to me. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm very happy to. Good luck with your senior project and stay in touch with me. I will. I will do that. And let me know what happens. If I ever <laughs> okay. if I ever find myself in court in any representation, I will. No, no, not for that reason. <laughs> I want to know what happens. No, I will. I will definitely keep <laughs> All right. Stay well. Okay. You too. You can find more of the show at Hollywood Greenhorn on Instagram and at Greenhorn Pod on Twitter. You can find my script and more of my work at ryanfitzgerald.org. Want to be on the show or know someone that would make a good guest? Email the show at hollywoodgreenhornshow at gmail.com. I'm always looking for new people to talk to. 
Next week, I talk to Lars Henriks, a cult filmmaker from Germany. He and I dive further into the world of Lovecraft cinema, and there may even be a musical number or two.